All right. It is Tuesday, August 7th, 2007. I'm George Jardine. I'm here with Ed Kashi in his new studio in Montclair, New Jersey. Thank you for having me, Ed. It's a pleasure to finally sit down and get a chance to chat with you. Well, thanks for coming. It's good to see you. Yeah, the space is really fabulous. Thank you. It's a good space. Ed, you had a really great start to your career in commercial illustration and editorial work in Northern California. And I can remember seeing your pictures regularly in the late 80s, actually, in Macworld magazine and various magazines, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, those kinds of things. And at some point, you made a pretty distinct switch into uh, a very pure form of photojournalism. What caused that? Well, that change actually took place in the late 80s. And in a sense, I found my true calling. It's what I always wanted to do. And uh, when I first graduated from university and started my career freelancing, uh, I think this is a a trap that many young photographers can fall into is once you start getting work, then it's sort of, wow, great, I'm working, I'm traveling, I'm making money, I'm getting published. And if you're not careful, especially the way editorial photography has changed in the last 20 years, you, you will end up doing things you maybe did not want to do. You know, and I did not want to become a photographer to do lit color portraits of CEOs. Mm. It's just sort of what I fell into because that's what the market was doing and continues to do for most of editorial photography. So I reached a point in the late 80s where I realized if I was going to become the storytelling documentary photojournalist that I always wanted to be, I was going to have to forge that on my own. So what sort of subjects are you most interested in photographing? Well, you mean these days? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'm doing a lot of work, um, doing a lot of work in the Middle East. Um, my, I guess my, my, the issues range from domestic social concerns. Right now, we're very involved with issues around health care and the sort of the, the health care crisis in America. And then internationally, I've been most recently done a project about oil and conflict in the Niger Delta in Nigeria, and uh, we'll be publishing a book next year with Powerhouse on that material. Um, So the issues are very serious, whether it's domestic or international, and uh, the international work can sometimes be a bit dangerous. I've been to Iraq six times, and Nigeria is also quite quite difficult place to work. Mm-hmm. And how do you get, what kind of credentials do you need to get into a place like Nigeria to photograph that kind of conflict? Do you, is it an association with National Geographic or, or are you totally on your own? Yeah, well, I'm on my own. I mean, in a way, the irony is that in a place like Nigeria, it's better to go in under the radar. Ah. But going in for the geographic as opposed to the first trips I took where I was on my own, there is a greater measure of protection, if you like. It might all be psychological and, <laughs> you know, a shamira. But um, also, if you get into trouble, then it's easier to prove you are part of this institution, you know. And, um, but in general, in a place like Nigeria, it's so kind of corrupt and freewheeling. If I, go, if I try to go in, well, first of all, you can't really get a journalist visa. It's very difficult to get a journalist visa to Nigeria. And it always has been. But you're taking a, a, a big bunch of cameras and cards and computers. And well, do we want to talk about well, what, what, yeah. what strings you pull to get in? Well, really, the, 
here's what I learned is you don't, like, I fly into Lagos, not into Port Harcourt, which is the, the capital city of the Niger Delta, because if you fly into Lagos, there's, you know, millions of foreigners coming in. They don't really pay attention. Mm. The other thing, and I think this is a case all over the world, is people don't get freaked out by still camera equipment. Mm. Even laptops, it's video equipment mm. that they get kind of wigged out on and I've never quite understood why but that's the case so and the other thing is of course I don't travel with a lot of gear you know I bring two or three cameras three or four lenses you know so I mean clearly I have more than the average tourist but it's not cases of equipment and it's interesting in 96 I experienced how the internet could bite you and uh, it was actually, PDN wrote about it. It was one of the first instances where this had happened where I posted stories I was doing about Jewish settlers in the West Bank. And it was a personal project I had been working on. And I didn't think about the fact that the settlers read, look at the internet. And they probably helped mm. build the internet, some mm. of them. And sure enough, the next time I went to Hebron, they had a printout of the f- web page in Salon. That, wow. that that published, you know, my work, and it wasn't the images they were concerned. Didn't it wasn't the images that they took issue with. It was what I said, yeah. where I equated the settlers with Hamas as obstacles to peace. Now, so like we're talking here about how do you get into Nigeria with equipment? One does need to be careful that you can't be so cavalier anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I also saw recently some of your pictures from the uh, the Niger Delta slaughter story. Was that related to the conflict or just another story you discovered when you were over there? Or tell me about that particular story. Well, I, I found out about the Trans Amati slaughterhouse um, through my fixers. And actually, it was the first day of, of my trip there for the geographic story. And, you know, when I'm working on my own work or for the National Geographic, and often the two are the same, um, I'm always looking for different ways to tell the story. So, of course, you have the militants and you have the oil companies and you have the lack of development, the sort of obvious and important notes that you have to hit. But when I was shown this slaughterhouse, for me, it was, an, it was allegorical about how, you know, the lack of development in this oil-rich country, the brutality and the raw, the rawness of daily life there. And so, and it took me actually almost a month to get permission. Mm. And in the end, we basically had to pay off the local guard kind of deal because that's how Nigeria works. And I, and I tend to not work like that. But in Nigeria, you really don't have a choice. Anyway, and once I got access to it, it was just, wow, it was another world. And I actually didn't eat meat for three months after that. Oh, I can imagine. The pictures are incredible. I mean, raw was exactly the, the word I was thinking. Very powerful images. So in the John Callan interview, uh, he described your subjects as dispossessed communities. There's a distinct thread in your work. And I think, you know, you may want to talk about the, the Talking Eyes Media project. But you have, it seems you have a hope for your pictures that they can make a difference. And I want to dig into that a little bit and find out your particular feelings about it. Well, I absolutely believe in the power of photography and the power of journalism still. I really do. And I know we live in a jaded time where a lot of journalism and the media have been discredited. But 
So I bring that spirit or that motivation, if you like, to my work. And one thing I can see when I look back at the subjects I've chosen over the years, I tend to like to look at groups of people that have been undercovered by the media. Or I like to look at a situation that might have gained a lot of coverage, but I look for the group that has not been, you know, like their story hasn't been told. Hmm. Uh, you know, because I firmly believe, like for example, with the West, with the West Bank and the Jewish settlers, they're viewed as the the bad guys, if you like. Or uh, when I worked in Northern Ireland, my first documentary project, I chose the Protestants. They're viewed as the bad guys in that equation, and for the most part, I agree on a political moral level. But they're still human beings, and they're still incredibly important players in the overall story. Hmm. And I really believe that. I'm not afraid to humanize the bad guy, if you like, because I think that's the way we come closer to an understanding mm -hmm. and an agreement. Mm. And, you know, again, I'm under no illusions that my photography or that journalism, well, let's say that my photography is going to change the world, but I believe we all contribute in our small ways to a bigger, like, aggregate in, how, in helping to form the collective memory, to helping form the history of our time. And that's really what motivates me. Mm. And a greater understanding across cultures. Absolutely. Bridging the gaps. Boy, we've never been in a moment where it's, it's more important to bridge the gaps of understanding, especially between the Muslim world and the Western world. Mm. Do you have a favorite example of a positive change that you've seen come about due to the publication of one of your images or a story? Well, that's a tough question. Um, yeah. I mean, I have a lot of, I mean, there have been a lot of specific instances where individuals have contacted me and they were motivated to go out and help people or um, contribute money. In terms of a, of a larger systemic change, I, I couldn't, I, I, I wouldn't even venture to, to, mm -hmm. to suggest that my work has done that. But what I have seen, I have seen particularly with the Kurds, my work on the Kurds, which is now 16 years I've been covering that, and domestically on aging. I've absolutely seen how that work can, has an impact mm. in changing. Maybe, I don't know if it's changed policy, but I know that that work has gotten in front of people who are policy makers and legislators. It brings an awareness. It brings an awareness. It um, maybe shows them... A, a, a slice of, the, of reality that they don't otherwise see. We've heard this countless times from caregivers and geriatricians in the case of aging in America where you know, they basically say to us, You're, you are presenting what we see every day, but not with a sugar-coated, not in a sugar-coated way. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. And that they mm -hmm. find great value in that. Do you find that there's always a trade-off between... Uh, possibly intruding on someone's life, personal life, or, you know, the need to tell the story. Yeah. And are there specific instances uh, that you can think of to relate about that conflict? Do you always ask permission to photograph someone? Is it implied sometimes? In some ways, I think I'm, someone like myself is too far gone with that question and because I'm so, I, I do it so naturally now, if you like, I, um, but I, I, I always think of, you know, Cartier-Bresson had this great quote, and I'm sure I'm not getting it quite right, but his approach was that, you know, if my job is to photograph 
flowers when I'm finished, I don't want the bed to be trampled. Right. And so I've always ab- tried to abide by that principle. Of course, I don't photograph flowers. I photograph hardcore, real-life social and political issues which thrust me into situations that are quite tricky, quite sensitive, and as you're alluding to in your question, can absolutely trample on the privacy of my subjects. But that is why it is so important to be clear with your subjects who you are, what you're doing, why you're doing it, and what you are going to do with that material. Mm-hmm. And, and when you are clear like that, unless you're in a situation where no one asks any questions, they just let you work freely, then people open up. They get it, or they don't, or they don't, and that's the risk you take. Mm-hmm. So quite often, I'm not a poker player, but, uh, but um, quite often, you know, there's just definitely a manipulation to doing this work. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a charm factor. There's a, you know, maybe a bit of a BS factor. If they like you, they'll be more accommodating. Yeah, and sometimes I have to, I have to get people who, if I, didn't, if I wasn't in a situation as a journalist, who I would hate and I would be disgusted by, and I actually have to get them to like me and you know, kind of enter into this dance mm. so that I can be privy to whatever they're doing and I can photograph them. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's the kind of chameleon-like approach or skin uh, ethos you have, to, you have to have to do this work properly. Mm. You know? And there are also lots of times where I'm the one who's crying. Like mm-hmm. I'm the one who's shedding tears in a situation because I'm witnessing things that are so intimate or so deep and they, they hit nerves inside of me sure. related to either my own life or just purely the sadness or the injustice of what I'm, of what I'm seeing. It's probably a pretty good sign that there's some really powerful photographs in the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I also feel that people, when they see me express, show emotion like that, then I am less of a demon or less of a threat because then I show that I'm a human being. Sure. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. It's a, it's a fascinating process, you know. But I think the spirit of your question is absolutely correct in that there's another kind of person who could look at this and go, who the hell do you think you are? You, no way, I'm never letting you see this or do that, you know. But, but I think the world split up into people who would agree to be photographed and to open their lives and, and people who, no matter, no, under no circumstance would they. Right, right. You know, and, I view the, and I view the people who do allow this to be kinds of heroes. Mm. Yeah, I found recently in my own photography that people object sort of sometimes on, just on principle and, or just out of reflex. And then if you show them their picture or allow them to take a picture with your camera or whatever, just that buy-in can create an entirely different situation. You also asked if I asked permission, and uh, sometimes, I mean, of course, there are times where I have to ask permission, especially when it involves getting inside people's homes or workplace or, you know, with children and all that. But on the street, and once I'm in a situation, I prefer to not have to ask permission because then the moment is usually lost. So do you ever feel the need to draw the line between telling an important story and possibly unintentionally furthering the cause of the bad guys? It's a great question. Uh, you know, I've often felt in my career that uh, I have become, I'm a pawn 
in someone else's propaganda game. Sure, sure. And just the fact that I've shown up is a victory enough for them. And so as I've, you know, matured and, uh, and, and, and done this more, I've, I've learned to read situations better. And it's a very funny dance where basically everybody is sort of using each other sometimes, you know. And uh, there have been times where I have not photographed because I felt that whatever I was going to get would further the cause of something I didn't believe in or I felt would not accurately portray what was going on. Like I was just basically being used, you know. Um, but again, you know, that's why it's so important to believe in what you're doing, mm -hmm. to be passionate about the subjects or the issues you're, you're trying to tackle. Uh, I feel it's like in a relationship when you're more honest and you bring this sort of um, kind of a passion to it, then the good stuff emerges, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. It's when you're like ill-intentioned or you're, or you're not really being truthful that I think that's where you get into these dangerous corners. Mm -hmm. Sure. So do you have a sense that um, photojournalism can create an awareness in readers of these situations that maybe is more potent or different than other forms of media? Video, television, news, for instance. What is it about photography that is so special and so different for you? Yeah, I really still believe that photography and photojournalism ha um, has tremendous power in its ability to tell a story in a very unique way. What I'm concerned about is that our brains are being rewired with the digital revolution. So in comparison to the other media that exist, there's a sense that still photography has lost some of its ability to compete, you mm. know? Mm -hmm. So, which is, but, the, but the, the unique qualities of photography remain, and I think they're almost innately connected to, or they're connected to what is innate about us as human beings and how our minds work and how our eyes work. So what's, you know, again, and it's been said many times, what's, a, what's so unique about still photography is it forces you to stop, it forces you to think. It's almost meditative, particularly compared to the other media that exists today. Mm. And there's a virtue in that. There's a need for it, like reading a book. There, there are things that it makes your mind do that are healthy for you. So, so beyond how it communicates in its unique way, I just still believe in the power of photography. What I'm particularly excited about now is this confluence between moving, the moving image with video and still images and sound. And I'm trying to explore, or I am actively engaged in exploring new ways, at least new for myself, in integrating those elements so that you have still photography as the core, almost the emotional notes, the, the deep and high notes in the story, but you have the sound and video that bring the narrative along. And I'm just trying, to, we're, we're playing with how you weave all that together mm -hmm. and so that you honor still photography, you still tell stories that are of meaning and that are deal with issues that are serious that, we need to, that I feel we need to look at, but you have the opportunity to bring in a, a, maybe a broader audience and a younger audience. At the end of the day, I'm dedicated still photographer, but damn it, man, I want to communicate to people. I, I, I don't, I'm not just looking to make fine art. 
I'm, I'm looking to try to change the world and help things. Mm -hmm. And I do believe in that. So if it means employing some video with my stills, fine. If it means doing some audio, cool. That's great. You know, I mean, as long as the photography is powerful and, 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 and then that's all that matters. And also what's interesting, which sort of harks back to your previous question about the issue of intruding on people. What I find in doing the multimedia thing or video or audio interviews, like we're doing here now, is I learn so much more about the subject. And it's, it's in a way that's different than just sitting around and, and shooting the bull with someone mm -hmm. when you're not taking pictures. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that there's this way you dig deeper into your subject and then they become more comfortable with you because they realize either you're really educated about their situation, you've taken the time and, the, and you care. And I tell you, look, there's nothing more potent than a sympathetic ear, right? Mm -hmm. That'll open anybody up. Sure. And that's really what this is about. It's like, tell me your story. I actually really want to hear your story. And then when I show you that I actually know something about the context of your story, then you want to open up even more. So then I get a fuller, deeper story to tell the world. Uh, that's a good way of putting it. Do you have a project in mind that you would think of as your most gratifying success in terms of generating the kind of awareness for a situation that you did when you went into it? For instance, the, the Aging in America project seems like it's... That's the one, the Aging yeah. in America. I mean, and we spent eight years on it. I've not wow. spent any... I mean, I've, I've done a number of other personal projects that seem to sort of finish at around three years, you know. But, um, yeah, Aging in America would be the one. And there's something quite beautiful to me in that it's about my own culture and society, you know, it's amazing for us to go out into the world to these places we actually don't really know so much about, mm -hmm. even though we think we might. I think I might. Um, you know, I mean, it's, of course, important to do that. It's important to do that. But it's great to know that, you know, we dedicated ourselves to telling an important story about our own country, our culture, our society, and that it continues to resonate. You know, and this is in the great tradition of the FSA photographers of the Depression era or Charles Moore and the civil rights photography did in the 60s. You know, there are countless examples of that. Just, you know, so I just feel I'm carrying on a grand tradition of documentary photography. Mm -hmm. Donna Ferrato and domestic violence, uh, Stephen Shames and child poverty. You know, where it's not even about the photography. It's not about the photographer. You've actually created something that's bigger than you. And that's really exciting. Mm. Oh, the pictures are very powerful. Well, one hopes that you, along the way you make great photographs, of course. Yeah. But, um, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I've been invited to be the keynote speaker at the opening of a Medicare center in Tennessee. Mm. Uh, like, all of a sudden, I'm somehow some authority on aging. And I'm, I, I, but I mean, but I'm like, my attitude is who would have thunk? I'm just a still photographer. I'm a photojournalist. But that's exciting. To me, and especially to younger photographers, that shows the potential of what we can do. You know, so this talk about photojournalism dying is a, it's a bunch of crap. Never, there's never been a time, there's never been more of a golden era of photography. And it's all over the world. Not just being done by Europeans and Americans. Hmm. It's being done by people in Bangladesh, in India, in Thailand, in Cambodia. People are picking up their cameras and doing this kind of photography. 
The problem is dissemination. How's that a problem? Because the magazine tradition for photography has not died, but it's shrunk significantly. So how? But the, but the potential for self-publishing now is so much greater. Absolutely, and that's why the internet and the web is is it's a, it's a thrilling new mechanism of dissemination that is more democratic. It's it's the access to it is virtually free, but you know, especially compared to trying to publish a book or convince. Le Figaro or Life magazine or, well, Stern or, New York or one of these magazines to publish your work, you know. So it's, um, it's a fascinating time. Yeah, it's the YouTube era. Yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> it's fascinating. But you can't wear the old hat uh, in, of photography. That's the point. Like, I look at it this way. We have my father-in-law living with us, and he's 84, he has dementia, and he's been with us for over a year now. And, you know, Julie, my wife, and I are thinking, okay, how long is this going to go on? You know, it's almost like, when can we get back to our lives? Well, the reality is, whether it goes on another year or another 10 years, we won't go back to something. We will go to something we mm-hmm. haven't mm-hmm. been yet. Yeah. And I think with, I know that's a bit pretty, it's a bit of a morbid uh, metaphor, sorry. <laughs> but, um, but it's that idea of if you, it doesn't even matter your age, but if you are holding on to this, ideal of what photojournalism should be or once was forget it man it's always going to you're going to be dead in the water got to move forward i don't care how great you are because yeah sure one of these magazines will give you work but eventually they'll stop giving you work because that's just how this profession that's how the world operates so so you have to look at it like well that doesn't mean you have to shoot video you know doesn't mean you have to even get audio Maybe you let someone else do that for you. I don't know. But you do need to have a much more broadened view of, of what is going on today, what's possible. You know, I haven't seen the book, Aging in America. When was it published? Um, 2003. Ah, who was the publisher on that? Powerhouse. Uh-huh. You've worked on the Aging in America project for eight years, and it still sort of has ongoing components. Yeah, well, that's... Even though the book's been published and... And we did a one-hour documentary. It's been shown on PBS over 200 times. It's, excerpts have been in film festivals, you know, on the Internet. Uh, MSNBC did an award-winning set of, of website, a website on it. Um, exhibitions. The George Eastman House tra- is traveling it. So it's, it's quite interesting how this kind of humble goal of creating a book and a traveling exhibition in the course of the eight years morphed into the multimedia extravaganza you know where so and I'd like to point out how you know whatever the book maybe sold 3,000 copies but the website has reached millions of people yeah that's and the 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 documentary has reached hundreds of thousands or millions of people that's fabulous. So you, one has to think about that. You know, you still want that book because it's like the fulcrum. Yep. It's the thing that says this is a fact on the ground. It's immutable. And then from there, all these other things can happen. To, you know, and so that's, that's, that's um, fascinating. But, but to, to sort of um, address your question, what's interesting is it lives on. So even today, we are working on a new commission it's a multimedia piece um, that is connected to the issue of aging, you know, and, and that I, like the Kurds, 
it's a subject that will be with me till the day I die probably. You know, and often when I lecture and teach, I, I say to people, this is what I love, one of the many things I love about doing this work, about being in this profession. How fortunate I am that I can have these ongoing love affairs mm. with subjects that uh, I know that's maybe a perverse way of looking at it because no, these are pretty heavy subjects. You love the subjects. Yeah, yeah and that they the enrich process. me. They sure. enrich me. And, um, and they're about life too. They're not about some esoteric thing, you know. They're about real life and real issues. So that I see as one of the many gifts of doing this work. And so aging will be with us forever, you know. And I could even see in 10 years from now doing like another book where we look at like what we thought we knew then and how things have changed, you know, who knows? Mm -hmm. Who knows where this will take us? Would you say it's been your most gratifying project to date? Absolutely. Really? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. There's that part of me with the spirit that needs to be out in the big world, and aging wasn't about that. It was very much the interior world, you know? So that was probably the only point of conflict internally for me of you know, I need to get out into the big world. But, you know, was it, was it Paul Strand who, you know, said, you know, I could spend the rest of my life photographing my backyard and never run out of things to see. Mm. You know, and again, these, try to remember from these masters, you, you know, these are still important yeah, points sure. to hold on to. And so, you know, for instance, we're doing a, a Sandwich Generation piece one year later. This is a multimedia piece about my wife's father moving in with us and you know i'm sitting in my kitchen going i don't i don't know i don't know any more angles that are left in this kitchen <laughs> but you know yeah, what they're, you they're, sit they're... there long enough and you wait and you find something new sure and and that's the magic of this you know oh it's a fabulous project well ed thank you so much for sharing your your thoughts and your wisdom and your passion about your photography here with us today you're welcome thank you 